Hello, 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 and welcome back to Inner Name Here. I'm Zach. I am Chris. And uh, we're back with your favorite. What's what's um, our favorite? My favorite? In, yeah. It's entertainment. Entertainment name here? Yep. Inner Name Here. <laughs> we're getting confused Entertainment here. name here. Uh, yeah, so thanks for coming back and checking us out again. Uh, yeah. Thanks for or as know, always. checking out the ones that you have. <laughs> if it's your first time. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, if it's your first time, then you don't know what we're doing, but we're just going <laughs> to... <clears throat> we barely do, too, so... <laughs> yeah, you're in the right crowd. Um, you're with the right crowd. We both sure. have a story about somebody, something, and we don't know what the other one's going to tell us about. And we'll find out together, and hopefully it's interesting enough that... It's a... Yeah, It'll at least have a good picture for Instagram and Facebook. Only been a couple times I can really remember that I zoned out for a second and then came back and you were looking at me. I'm like, shoot. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I, I don't even remember half of what we talked about. But usually, I was asleep for a couple no, of them. Usually, then that's normally my fault. I'm tired after work sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. And then we wait late. We normally yep. you know, get all of our good talking done before we're recording. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to check out some funny pictures, go on uh, uh, Instagram, which is entertainment, or sorry, Intername Here podcast, <laughs> and uh, Facebook is Intername Here. Um, so he has been putting up some pretty entertaining stuff. I'm trying yeah. to entertain yeah. you. Yeah. You know, I, there's a secret arrow in everyone, and then we just added some more... Uh, faces to put on so we'll see how things go I things will change do a where's waldo with uh just our different artworks and put arrows in it's there. funny how like our faces look exactly the same but they're completely different <laughs> at the same time so whatever <laughs> um if you want to email us please do uh it's entertainment god <laughs> wow enter name here to, podcast yeah. at gmail.com there we go enter name here on facebook yeah and what's that other one enter name here podcast on instagram yeah there we go yeah. you did better at it this time. yeah that's the first time i've nailed all, all three over the place <laughs> what we're 18 episodes in i think and i nailed all three for the first time there we go we're, we're building <laughs> we're building our our repertoire slow up. learner um so yeah uh so before we get started on our names for the week, I guess we should I catch up I thought you were getting ready to wrap it up. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for checking us out, guys. Donate your organs. Yep, do it. Um, we've got a, there's a, a guy that we talked about a couple weeks ago that this guy was living at the bottom of the water. Oh, the like professor the, dude. Yeah, and he finally he came out after a hundred days. So. Yeah, I saw that headline, but I didn't read the story. Yeah, I mean, I I had it, and I as usual, I had a computer oh, problem. Right. Yeah, all your and I can't find. I mean, I'm sure I can find it. I'm not really. Information disappeared. Yeah. Um. So yeah, after a hundred days, he finally got out. So kudos to him. I'm sure that it's interesting to get yeah, back after, on land. Gosh, it was at death a little over three months ish. Well, I think we got him when he was like 75 days in, so last month. We got him. Yeah, we got him. <laughs> um, so, good for him. He's yeah, back good out for him, land. for sure. Yeah. Um, good for this lady, too, because I found out that this lady in Ecuador, uh, yeah, a 76-year-old woman was declared dead at a hospital in Ecuador. She astonished her relatives by knocking on her coffin during her wake. <laughs> Hell no. And the <laughs> incident has prompted a government investigation into the hospital. Uh, no shit. Yeah, for real. Uh, I, I saw this story as well. I, it was on my list. It's insane. Yeah, they said relatives left the coffin behind and rushed retired nurse Bella Montoya 
back to the hospital after the wake Friday in the central city of Baba Hoyo. I'm glad you told Baba the story. Ho- Baba yeah, Hoyo. Yeah, I think Baba Hoyo. Uh, her son. Her it. son told the Associated Press, "It gave us all a fright." <laughs> Gilberto said, "You don't say." Adding that the doctors have said his mother's situation remains dire. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like she's right. Yeah, I mean, you locked but, her in a coffin for a couple days. But they thought she was dead, so she's probably pretty yeah. towards the end anyway. But, like, yeah, they get to the... I, I mean, swear that there was a movie with that. You essentially have to have that funeral twice. There was... You know, you're halfway... You only have to do the second half. They already <laughs> did half just... of it. And she was like, ah, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can't go back. I swear there was a movie where there was a scene where, like, somebody was in their coffin and they're like, hey, let me out. Oh, I'm sure there's lots of I mean, movies I'm, where there's... Kill Bill, she, like, punches her way out, but <laughs> there was one... It seemed very similar to this, so... I'm a, sounds like surprising she could even knock loud enough to... Okay, oh, man. How many times have people been just put... To, uh, buried alive the, okay so the mother was unconscious when she was brought to the emergency room and a few hours later a doctor informed her son that she that she was dead and handed over identity documents and a death certificate the family then brought her to a funeral home i guess it's pretty qu- i don't know how things are done there it might be quicker <laughs> uh the family then brought her to a funeral home and were holding a wake later on friday uh this past a week ago i guess um when they started to hear strange sounds. Uh, the son says, there were about 20 of us there. After about five hours of the wake, oh my God. the coffin started to make sounds. My mom was wrapped in sheets and hitting the coffin, and when we approached, we could see that she was breathing heavily. Uh, they rushed her back to the hospital. She was still in serious condition by Monday, and she was under intubation, and doctors weren't giving relatives much hope about her prognosis oh man so oh interesting oh that's horrible yeah yeah I mean, so you know I'll, I'll give us a lighter note all right do, do one that's a little bit lighter <laughs> is it a bear related one no I, you know what i don't have a bear related really? story this i've week. seen like seven of them so you've got a bear related yeah, story definitely yeah i didn't um oddly <clears throat> enough i don't think i have a single animal story amongst mine this week which well. is a, a first as well but um, this one, headline reads, No More Rides to Hell on Bus 666 in Poland. Oh, I did heard see that. Story. that. Yeah, the town's name is <clears throat> Poland? Yeah, it was in, uh, well, the story's from Warsaw, Poland, but oh, I don't think okay. it was in Warsaw. Um, let's see, there will be no more going to hell on Bus 666. The bus to the town of hell on Poland's Baltic coast has long been popular with tourists. You know, shit. And like, but right. some Christian conservative conservatives have protested the number signifying the devil on a bus leading to a place that sounds like the word hell in English. <laughs> a local bus operator announced this week that bus 666 will no longer run to hell. It said it had flipped the last number and would now run the line under the number 669 starting on June 24th. Local media said the bus company acted under the pressure of Christian groups who had pushed for the change but were already thinking of returning to the old number amid a public outcry over the change. So they're probably going back to 666. No, they're going back to like. 669. Well, that's what they're changing it to, but then they had outcry over that change. So oh. they're like, now they're thinking yeah, of going back to 666. Yeah. You can just ignore it. Yeah. I mean, it started out as a joke to attract riders. Yeah, you know, and has and it done like, anything and for it worked. The, and So people come there, so the town's economy will now... Right. Being hurt because somebody can't 
get over that a bus is numbered six. Yeah. I mean, I it, I find it comical. I would do that just it because. It says some people rode the bus simply to say they had taken the 666 yeah. bus to hell. Like, no shit. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's there why you ride that. There could be people that come all the way to that town for that reason. Yeah, they said there were definitely people from all over the country coming there. Yeah, just and there was no other bus. reason why they'd come yeah. to this butthole town, <laughs> you know? Like, right. I don't know. What town was it? Outside Warsaw? Yeah, I don't think it ever actually... I keep looking for the town. The town is called Hell. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it is in Warsaw. And maybe it's like some suburb of Warsaw, maybe. Yeah, it must be. But, yeah, okay, so now you got people coming there spending money, like... Yeah. whatever grow up <laughs> i know right grow up <laughs> but yeah fun who knows who, hmm. who knows who knew there was a, a bus to hell a real bus to hell well right i guess we if we're ever in poland then we can <laughs> right. maybe there's a highway there too so you can get there on the highway I, I to bet hell. You there's at least one high oh right i got you yeah Gosh. but yeah i bet you there's at least one highway in in Poland, home, I said Ecuador. <laughs> yeah, well, there's probably maybe, one there, too. At least one, maybe. That might be where yeah, one of the scariest roads is. You know, the world's scariest oh, roads. It's like that, they cut through the side of a mountain yeah, with a 2,000-foot drop. Mm-hmm. They get the people from Ice Road Truckers. And then to, they t- take bus drivers that drive like they're on Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> like 100 right. miles an hour around like, these turns. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my God. Like, you got a horn from a little moped. There's, like, on people sitting on the bus. roof of the bus. Like, i got to get there no i'll walk thanks (laughs) for real i'll be late um okay but speaking of like crazy people uh this british guy was in seoul south korea he was detained after climbing more than halfway up the world's fifth tallest skyscraper. He stole that story from me, too. Uh-oh. With only his bare hands. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, more than 90 emergency police and other personnel were dis- dispatched to the 123-story, 1,820-foot-tall Lot World tr- World Tower. Yeah, the third tallest building in the fifth. world. Or fifth, I'm sorry. The fifth Still. tallest is... Uh, uh, 1,820 feet said tall. He was more than halfway up that damn thing. He's in his 20s. He reached the 72nd floor, which is uh, about 1,020 feet high. Before nothing. officials took him in to a gondola lift and moved him inside the building. First of all, they had to get on the thing that the crazy guy that decides he's going to be the guy that washes <laughs> the windows for that place <laughs> is going to be on. Right. Yeah, There's that- a picture of him on AP News. And he's just like on the side of this. Like yeah. I'll give him. I'll give it. I'll give it this. The side of the building looks very ladder-like. Sure. So he might. It might. It's not like he's climbing up like a a sheer right. flat glass or flat stone and you building. You could say that for maybe two stories in my life, and then it's you know. seven. Like the picture you can see in the background. Like, are you looking at this picture? Like no, I, I looked at it earlier. In it's the like, background, I, you good. can see the part other part of the city, and there's skyscrapers. Way off in the distance, that just look like they're in a, in a different area code. <laughs> right. And this guy's just up there, like seventy-two yeah. floors, strapped to nothing. Um, the fire and police authorities didn't immediately confirm the man's name or his motive. Uh, South Korean media, however, identified the free the man as a free climber, which you know just yeah. counts your minutes. You're gonna be right. knocking on, hopefully, knocking on the coffin. Well, in yeah, I mean, yeah, this guy. I mean, he's been arrested for this stuff before. Um, his name was George King Thompson, and the report said he was carrying a parachute and told police that he wanted to base jump from the top of the building. <laughs> All right, well, do what you want to do, but right. Um, in 2019, the same guy was arrested scaling the Shard in London, the UK's tallest skyscraper, which is 
1,017 feet um, after the owners of the building pressed charges against him for trespassing. Uh, he was sentenced to six months in prison and served three. Yeah. Um, in East London in 2021, he climbed the 36th story. That's nothing. 36 stories. That's half, that's half the size that he was on. <laughs> right. And he did this one in 2021, 36 stories, and he topped it in less than half an hour. Yeah. So he's just like, whoop, 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 Spider-Man up the side right of right up thing. the side of a building. Uh, he said he picked that building because he was shocked by the flash floods that recently hit the area and wanted to raise awareness of the serious of climate change. I, I mean, there's lots of ways to do it, I guess. You can do however you want, I yeah, guess. You know? You know? I mean, I'm not going to do it. He's not hurting anyone never, else. But. You'll never watch me climb the side of a building. <laughs> no. No, I think my climbing days are done. And they were never much anyway. Stairs. That's what I'll climb. <laughs> that's, you know. Yeah, maybe. Questionable. <laughs> Depends on what's at the top. I take so. the stairs at work sometimes. Yeah, I take know. the stairs, but if it's like one of those staircases, it's like 3,000 steps. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm going to do that, but whatever. <laughs> it's like those towers. If we watch that video. Oh, those climb oh, the radio towers. God, the guy just gets on the outside that of That thing, thing was like taller than... One of the, it was taller than most buildings on yeah. earth, and this guy would climb up the top and drag this bag up behind him oh. and change the light bulb. <clears throat> And yeah. it's fine, like, the first bit, and then all of a sudden, like, you're on the outside climbing up, and the pole just keeps getting smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller. Yeah. And you're and climbing just the exterior of this tower. There's no ladder. There's nothing. There's just, like, pegs. Yeah. And then yeah. he's not yeah. even, like, uh, roping off or clipping off. Yeah. He's just like, la, la, la. Ugh. Yeah, if you uh, check that out on YouTube, but also uh, the movie Fall is yeah. essentially these girls climbing one of those yeah. towers. I think we brought that up before. But yeah, yeah. yeah, that movie just, I guess, made I'm me I'm sure we talked about this nervous. going up this tower. But <laughs> when you go up to the top of this particular one that they show on this video, it was what they say you could see 55 miles. Oh, like, yeah. that's how high up you are. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. He makes like $30,000 each time he goes up that yeah, tower, but I don't, I don't think that's enough. But whatever. No, no, I couldn't do it for thirty grand. Um, okay, so to our bear news. Bear news. One of them, I guess. Wrong time. Um, visitors to a Florida beach were in for a surprise on June twelfth uh, when a bear, a black bear, was spotted swimming side by side with fellow beachgoers. <laughs> um, the the bear emerged from the ocean and swam next to human beachgoers before making its way to shore. Uh, Chris Barron, who recorded footage no. of the bear, said, the bear was out pretty far, man. A lot of, <laughs> Is that the quote? No, I added no. the man, no. but I could just imagine. <laughs> the bear was out pretty far, man. Uh, a lot of people started swimming in. I was worried it was a shark. I walked over and thought it was a dog. My last name's Barron. Um, Barron said the <laughs> was the... Baron, B A R R O N, but that's hilarious. I didn't even think about that. That's why you're laughing. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, Baron said the bear was swimming right by his brother and a twelve and his twelve year old son. At this point, man, I realized he was a bear and started videoing. He kept swimming in. He got to shore, shook off, and ran into the brush and the sand dunes. I think most people were shocked, man. Instead of being scared, no one expected to see the bear in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, yeah, no, so, especially not me. There's a video of it on. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is on the internet. Yeah. So you look up uh, Florida Bear Gulf of Mexico or whatever. So 
Um, <laughs> it's it's never going to be as good as you doing the voice for the guy, though. I mean, I would be. That would be hilarious if he talks like that. But I don't know the guy. He might not. Right? Yeah, I don't need to see anything. Um, I'm done. I'm good with that story. <laughs> yeah, man. It was, it was a bear. I thought it was a dog. I thought it was a shark. Or you threw man. in that first man. I'm like, really? Is that the quote? That's no, awesome. I, that was totally <laughs> quote with some. Uh, Spicing so, up. A little improv. A little <laughs> spicing up on that one. So, um, totally unplanned, folks. That's what we do here. Mm-hmm. We unplanned. provide, hopefully, some sort of entertainment. Yeah, you plan it, we unplan it. Yep. Um, well, this is an interesting one, too, because <laughs> uh, this is in Louisiana. Is story time. I like this. Louisiana, this 28-year-old, uh, Martha Jacinia Gutierrez Serrano, Nailed it. And her mother, Marta Elizabeth Serrano Alvarado, uh, who the mother's 46, the daughter's 28. Both of, it's funny, I have more trouble coming up with the name of this. This is Boot, Booty, B O U T T E, Louisiana. That's the town they live in. They were arrested Tuesday by this. Boot. Boot or Boutte, maybe there's French Boutte. down there. You know, it's true. It's true. Um, they were arrested this past Tuesday by the St. Charles Parish Sheriff's Office, uh, and they're each charged with one count of injuring public records. Injuring public. Uh, the records. daughter used a fake passport and birth certificate, or the mother, sorry, used a fake passport and birth certificate from Honduras to register and enroll her daughter at Hanville High School. For the 2022-2023 year. She's 28. Year. 28, yeah. <laughs> um, she told investigators she enrolled in school to learn English. I mean, fair enough. There's. She yeah. wanted to learn English. She wanted to become proficient in ling- English, uh, the sheriff says. There's no nefarious reason behind this, he said, adding that the falsifying of government documents to do this was just, quote, bad judgment. Yeah. Well... There are other ways that she could have taken, said, including enrolling in GED programs, ESL, and it's certainly a better option than falsifying records. So, yeah, it wasn't as like I thought it was going to be a little bit more comical. Like when that like twenty-five-year-old woman was like pretending to be a high schooler and playing basketball and like swatting everything away and like <laughs> dunking on people. Right, I remember that right, one. That yeah. was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and then doing it with like sass too. You know? Yeah, like, that's a lot different. Than, like this, this chick's trying to learn English to like better her life and like living in America, right? <laughs> right? So yeah, it's like going to preschool and just like you know nerfing it in everybody's face. <laughs> yeah, play on your do- knees. Like that's like when I worked in public schools, like they have. PE, that'd be like if I were to like jump in and play dodgeball and just be zinging like <laughs> sliders at them and stuff. Yeah, yeah, making kids spit blood. Boink! Yeah, just <laughs> slamming them against the wall. You know. Let's see, I'm going to throw in another one here. Right. Um, the uh, Illinois man charged after telling uh, police he shot himself in the leg. Yes, I was going to tell that one, and I was going to tell you that that was going to be if America was a news article. <laughs> Because this is hilarious. Because he was having a dream about the intruder. Yes. And so he shot himself while asleep and dreaming about someone breaking into his house. And so ended up shooting himself in the leg, and that's what woke him up. Right. Does, do you know what kind of gun he had? <laughs> oh, it says it in the story. I don't remember. A three fifty seven Magnum, which is a huge <laughs> he gun. He shot the hell out of himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was ridiculous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean... uh, Mark DeCara. 
The man told investigators he had, quote, had a dream that someone was breaking into his home, end quote, and during that dream he, quote, retrieved his three fifty seven Magnum revolver and shot at who he believed was the intruder, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his name was Mark Dakara of Lake Barrington, Illinois. And he, uh, it was about 9.50. First of all, why is he asleep at 9.50? But whatever. <laughs> I mean, shoot. Um, a lot of people go to sleep. This was early. back on April 10th. So this is just getting out. Recently, <laughs> this was just the... Yeah, I didn't like, even notice that was This the was just like it. two days before we record this. So like the 14th of June, this was released. Um, yeah, it says uh, deputies responded to the scene after receiving a call reporting a person with a gunshot wound. They found Dakara when they arrived, suffering from a gunshot wound to the leg and losing what they described as a, quote, <laughs> significant amount of blood. Uh, it was later determined that the round discharged from his gun went through the leg and lodged itself in his bedding, so no one else was harmed. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, they took him to the hospital with the tourniquet. And uh, during the investigation that followed, here's the even better part of this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the, the zinger, if you will. Uh, during the investigation that followed, authorities realized that Dakara owned and used a revolver despite not having a firearm owner's identification card, which is mandatory in Illinois in order to legally possess a gun. Right. His uh, identification card had previously been revoked, although they did not share details as to why. Um, so he got two charges, possession of a firearm without a valid FOID card, and a reckless discharge of a firearm. They both considered cl- one's a class three and one's a class four uh, felony. Mm-mm-mm. He was arrested on Monday, this past Monday, I guess. So, I mean, I guess he just finished up the investigation. That's yeah, why he had to turn up. himself in. He was arrested and then released after posting a $150,000 bond. Like, yeah. And he's scheduled to appear in court on June 29th. So, <sighs> yeah. Uh, you know, be careful out there. Yeah, you know, don't shoot follow yourself. Follow all uh, local and state and federal guidelines when purchasing and uh, owning firearms. Indeed. And be careful with them, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I guess if it's you something have, if you're sleepwalking, essentially. But God, Yeah, I mean, I've they, seen stories about people that have gotten away with actual murder because they were sleepwalking. But Right. So it's like, you know, I mean, it's not like some of the stories where it's like, well, that person's an idiot. It's like, well, this guy may be an idiot, but... Well, he was an idiot because he didn't legally possess his right. gun, and he's got a three fifty seven for home use. And it was easy enough for him to get to while he was sleeping for him to be able to get to it while he was You're sleeping. Sleeping under my pillow. Yeah, under my pillow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, come on, man. Yeah. He's lucky he didn't die. Yeah, for real. But it was funny, and it was totally like, I saw that article. Yeah. And I was like, man, that, that is too. America yeah. right yeah. there. Well, like, actually, I guess I started telling that story. Yeah, you didn't even have to like <laughs> say that that was in America. You could just oh, yeah. read the headline that's and not, somebody be like, that's America. That's not happening. Like, maybe Canada, but nah. <laughs> it's not happening. Right. Yeah, I got um, an update on the uh, the driver that launched their car off of the, oh, the truck ramp. Oh, yeah. The, the... Yeah, the girl. Um, let's see. A woman whose car was captured on video vaulting into the air. Like, And again, if you guys haven't watched that yet, go ahead check and it check out. that out. It's great. Um, it vaults over a tow truck and crashes onto a Georgia highway. She says she's recovering after spending two weeks in a hospital and undergoing several surgeries. I don't really remember much, but I know that I thought I was going to die. It hurts really, really bad. I felt everything. Wow. Yeah, so it's like she you know, remembers it. When I go to sleep, that's pretty much what I dream about. 21-year-old Breton says. It just replays over and over. (laughs) Shit. So, yeah, it's like you remember it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, my what, family what didn't did want to. What did she say she was doing? Did she say? <clears throat> she didn't she's say. She's not going to no. say, but we know what she was doing. Yeah, she says my family didn't want to show me the video, but of course I'm hard-headed and got on social media. Dude, it, if I was in that, you know, I would never stop watching that video. <laughs> Especially if I like, I mean, she's yeah, hurting. She's not like, it's not like she's paralyzed or. Right. I mean, sounds like maybe she's dealing with it okay, but yeah, yeah. yeah it's I mean, like, it could be pretty traumatic. Sure, but it would also be like eventually. Granted, she thinks about it every like, night. Like at some yeah. point, you have to be like, "Wow, look at that!" Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, you know, like think your lucky stars situation. Yeah, there. it's like that you didn't uh, hurt anybody else or yourself. Right. Yeah, I mean, but that is like epic. You got away with one. Then. That's an epic uh, flight. For yeah, a I guess car. she had some pretty. Uh, um, serious internal injuries and stuff. So she's pulling through, but yeah. Like, All right. Well, yeah. check that video out too. Lots of videos to check out. Yeah. That one. I mean, yeah, that one you can watch over and over. That doesn't make my palms sweat when I watch it. Like that guy climbing a building. Like, nah, nah you're crazy. Not interested. Don't even do that. Um, so yeah. All right. So this week in world records. Oh, uh, which is funny. My my name tonight's kind of a world record sort of thing. Longest name? <laughs> no, <laughs> just that thing that somebody let their cat walk on the uh, keyboard. And that's how they name their kid. <laughs> right? Uh, no, this guy in Florida, not the bear guy. Uh, it's he has a specific dog breed that he loves, and he now has the world's largest collection of. Dalmatian-related items with 1,152 pieces. So, I mean, you know, wow. Scar- Scott Urbel. You just going on the Guinness World Records collection? No, this page? is on that note. It just comes up, dude. Huh. Uh, he said his collection <laughs> began in, when a Dalmatian lamp his parents brought him when he was a baby in 1954. Oh, okay. So this guy's not as bad as like some of the other ones. Like His has been like a long time that he's been... Yeah, he didn't accumulate it all in like six months. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he has... Uh, huh. Wow. He became a firefighter as, at 16, and uh, that's one of the reasons that he's... Oh, the Dalmatian is like the dog of firefighters. Yeah, that's where he got the love of the Dalmatian more so, I guess. Uh, he was a professional firefighter Dalmatian. in Arlington County, Virginia from 1975 till 1977. Huh. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's a lot of Dalmatian stuff. And, yeah... Uh, Collection features plush toys, figurines, Christmas decorations, artworks, all the same stuff, including a pair of Thomas Kincaid prints worth about $2,000 each. There's Thomas uh, Kincaid again. Remember that trivia question, don't you? Yeah. Mm, um, I can see it bothering He you. says, I'm sure I will be outnumbered at some point. Yeah, you already are. In which case, I will try again. Since the record count in February, I've easily acquired another 50 items. It's just so much fun. Uh, I mean, I can understand that. Then he says, somehow I need to get this under control. I must have spots, (laughs) he said. So, that's this week in World Records. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. That's actually, it turned out the the guy sounds uh, strangely down to earth for someone who has the largest Dalmatian stuff collection. like you walk into that house and you're like, "Uh, (laughs) see you later, Scott. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, my stomach's starting to hurt. Sorry, I gotta go. It's like, I'm going to shit spots. It's just like... Just everything, the sheets, the pillows, like everything's Dalmatians. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I guess he's got vision issues, maybe. You know? <laughs> right. Good for, so you, good for you, Scott. Keep on collecting. Indeed. Do what you, do what you love, we guess. <clears throat> do what you love. Um, I can't do the accent. Damn. That, that uh, 1940s yeah, talking yeah. guy. Do what you love. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm not even going to try. Um, you got to be down in there somewhere. Anyways, uh, this week, I guess it's Chris's week to get his out of the way. <laughs> He's never going to hear the end of it. You probably will. I'll forget <clears throat> eventually. Um, I did remember who was going first, though. So I've gotten it yeah. down now. Yeah. We actually like, plan yeah. ahead sometimes for this. Sometimes not. What, for going first? No, we just talked about it beforehand, so we knew. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were ready for it this week. We did yeah. talk about it beforehand. Um, so, yeah, this week, I'm uh, my main name is a guy named Donald Crowhurst, who is no longer with us. But um, he had, uh, eventually, I'm going to go kind of back into history, but eventually he sets out to uh, do one of the first um races circumnavigating the globe okay and so telling the story about him but it all starts with a guy named francis chichester chichester <laughs> chichester hmm. francis chichester I'm like huh, what if you had to say a... his name and you had a stutter Ch- chichester chichester <laughs> the chichester chia <clears throat> anyway francis chichester <laughs> and then i screw it up was born in 1901 in england and he would uh go on to start a business uh, when he was 18 and go to New Zealand to do it. It was a business in forestry, mining, and property development. Um, <clears throat> things were going really well until the Great Depression when everything crashed, and he had to come back home to England where he would take up flying, and that's kind of where he um, spread his wings, so to speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was, I'm like, yeah, I had nothing He's going to play on words the whole time now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm bad at it, too, oddly enough, for an English major. But um, <clears throat> a little bit from Wikipedia on uh, Chichester. After returning to England in 1929 to visit his family in Chichester, <laughs> Chi took flying lessons at Brooklyn's Surrey and qualified as a pilot. He then took delivery of a de Havilland Gypsy Moth aircraft, which he intended to fly to New Zealand, hoping to break Bert Hinkler's record solo flight back to Australia on the way. You're getting all the good names. This yeah, week. I know, right, Bert Hinkler? Like, that's a <laughs> that's <laughs> like yeah, you make up your your. Uh, yeah. Your porn name. <laughs> My first cat was named Bert. I grew up on Hinkler Street. Well, I, I think Bert Hinkler was in Australia when I was looking it up. I could be wrong. So, you know, if I got an expert out there, my, my bad. You're writing the biography on Bert Hinkler, not me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so uh, he got this plane. Um, he wanted to break a record himself. So there's my record-breaking thing. Okay. Um, while mechanical problems meant that the record... Yeah, mechanical problems meant that the record would elude him. He completed the trip in 41 days. So from England to uh, New Zealand in 41 days. This aircraft, obviously not in the air the entire time, but... Why not, dude? <laughs> the aircraft was then shipped to New Zealand. Or I guess he flew to Australia. My bad, because that was I just sat in the airplane <laughs> while I was on the boat. Does that I got count? all kinds of mixed up. Does that, that count? <laughs> Finding that he was unable to carry enough fuel to cross the Tasman Sea directly, Chichester had his gypsy moth fitted with floats borrowed from the New Zealand Permanent Air Force and went on to make the first solo flight across the Tasman Sea from east to west, New Zealand to Australia. He was the first to land an aircraft at Norfolk Island and Lord Howe Island, Again, the trip was delayed after his aircraft was severely damaged at Lord Howe. He had to rebuild it himself with the help of Highlanders. So, yeah, this is that kind of guy where he's like, you know, my business failed, but I'm just going to go on adventures now. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Back when you could do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, he's like, I'm just going to try to break all these flying records because, hey, I became a pilot after my business failed. <laughs> yeah. He would complete this trip using um, off-course navigation. So this is, uh, if you remember the story about the guys that got lost out, 
in the ocean. Like they were using a dead reckoning, which I think is a form of like off course navigation. Like it's using the concepts of it, which I had trouble understanding. Okay. <laughs> but um, though the concept of off course navigation, steering to one side so you know which way the error is, is probably as old as navigation. Navigation, Chichester was the first to use it in a methodical manner in an aircraft. The general principle was when the sun is to the right or left of one's course, of one's course, one can check the course but not distance to the destination. When the sun is ahead or behind one's course, the distance to one's destination can be checked but not one's course. Wow. So yeah, so say that like right. five times. It fast. would require you to already have some like um like locations figured out and on a table okay. so that like you're like if the sun is here then i should be here you're basically kind of flying based on the sun right. essentially and all these points and this that was planned out what, like the early what 1920s or something yeah this was uh yeah. after world war one but before world war two yeah. yeah yeah so yeah 19 no this was in the 30s because his you business had to have some guy failed. standing on yeah. the wing just to keep the motor spinning <laughs> yeah, right well it's the 30s now so it's a little you know things have gotten a little they actually had just gotten to where you were inside <laughs> when you were flying right yeah you could be inside <laughs> oh good lord um when the sun is ahead, yeah, Chichester planned his final approach to follow a line of position directly to his destination. This te technique allowed him to find tiny islands in the Pacific. He was awarded the inaugural Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators Johnston Memorial Trophy for the trip. Chichester was then decided then decided to circumnavigate the world solo. He made it to Japan, but at Katsura, Chiba, he collided with an overhead cable, sustaining serious injuries. <laughs> so, they weren't yeah. even flying high enough to get over cables. <laughs> right. So uh, World War II comes around. Um, he's able to volunteer in the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve as an air navigation specialist. And in 1943, he is sent to Empire Central Flying School, where he uh, becomes an instructor in navigation. So he would write the navigation manual there that allowed the pilots of single-handed fighter aircraft to navigate across Europe and back using navigation similar to that which he had used in the Pacific. So, you know, he's making moves and strides in navigation. Right. So this okay. is uh, bringing on the next stage of his life, though. Okay. This is not even who my story's about. Good no. grief. Yeah. At the end of the war, he stayed in the, uh, the UK. He purchased a 15,000 surplus... <laughs> purchased 15,000 surplus air ministry maps, initially pasting them onto boards and making jigsaw puzzles out of them, and later founded his own successful map-making company. And then in 1958, he decided, um, well, he was diagnosed with lung cancer and decided he wanted to um, become a sailor, basically. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Well, I'm sick. You know what I want to do? Well, I, I call it a sailor, but Chichester turned to long-distance yachting. So I was finding it in my notes. I had to get to the next page there. Um, in 1960, he entered and won the first single-handed transatlantic race, which had been founded by Blondie Haster in the 40-foot ocean racing yawl, Gypsy Moth 3. He came second in the second race four years later. So the guy, you know, he's a trier. On August uh, 27, 1966, Chichester sailed his catch Gypsy Moth 4 from Plymouth in the United Kingdom and returned there after 226 days, about seven and a half months of sailing, um, <clears throat> having circumnavigated the globe with only one stop in Sydney, Australia. By doing so, he became the first person to achieve a true circumnavigation of the world solo from west to east via the Great Capes. 
Great Capes being the south, the southern ocean. Right. Yeah. Uh, the voyage was also a race against the clock, as Chichester wanted to beat the typical times achieved by the fastest fully crewed clipper ships during the heyday of commercial sail in the 19th century. So, you know, guys into breaking records and stuff. Uh, the fanfare from his accomplishment spurred the Sunday Times to create the Golden Globe race. The Golden Globe was the first circumnavigational race um, of the globe. Well, that's circumnavigational. And would be open to anyone, whether they had the money to, you know, they, they could get a sponsor and get a boat, then they could compete in this race, whether they were ready for it or not. Okay, gotcha. um, The race was expected to appeal to the adventurous spirit in everyone and would perhaps open the door to anyone that felt they could answer the call. And there were no safety regulations then. Just anybody could I do mean, this. it was the 60s. Like, yeah, a lot of the things I was reading, because <clears throat> like I said, I most of my information did come from Wikipedia. Though I, I read other articles. They all gave me about the same information. Right. So I was like, well, let me just stick with Wikipedia this time. But uh, yeah, they all said... Um, you know, things then were different than they are now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it was definitely, like, you know, this. there were hardly weather forecasting. Like, I mean, these guys would go out, they would have a radio, but didn't always work. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, yeah. they had, you know. I don't think people realize right, what we got had now. to be very skilled in navigation, essentially. Like, their navigational skills had to be really amazing, top-notch. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, to know what the hell they were doing and yeah, where they were especially going. especially once and, you get out in the ocean. Right. And they say when you get to the South Seas, like, they're intense. <laughs> and so, like, they're, I'll get a, I'll get to it, but they have to go a certain time of year and okay. yada, yada, yada. So, um, <clears throat> in comes Donald Crowhurst, finally, the guy I'm uh, talking about tonight. He felt that this uh, Golden Globe race was his calling. Um so he's uh, 35. He felt like he had something to prove to himself, his family, and the world. He had a struggling business selling navigational equipment to sailors and aviators, but business was not going well and he needed money. So the winner of the Golden Globe would receive 5,000 pounds. The first to finish would receive a trophy, and the fastest to finish would receive the 5,000 pounds. So the idea is between, uh, I have the dates in here somewhere, which I'm sure, but between these two dates, if you leave between those dates, your time is measured on how long it takes you to do it. Okay. The first person to complete it gets the trophy, but the fastest to complete it gets the, the prize, the money. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So you have these certain months to leave because uh, <clears throat> if you leave after October, by the time you get to the South Seas, it's going to start getting to be winter and down there and it's going to be even worse conditions than what it would normally be right, so you want to get yeah. to the south seas while it's still summer so you've got to leave before october 31st essentially okay between june 1st i think and october 31st and you're leaving from the, where you're leaving from um somewhere in britain like you don't all have to leave from the same place you just have to leave from britain uh, okay. <laughs> I think, and you just have to come back yeah, to the same because place because that's part like donald crowhurst chose to leave from a certain spot and so like not everybody okay. had to leave from the same spot all right but you had to come back to the same spot i guess so as long as it was you know leaving from the britain spot and coming back to the britain <laughs> spot okay. then you're circumnavigating the globe okay but, gotcha um so, yeah, again from Wikipedia, not again, that was my notes before, but now from Wikipedia, Donald Crowhurst was born in 1932 in Ghaziabad, British India. His mother was a school teacher and his father worked in the Indian railways. During her pregnancy, his mother had longed for a daughter and Crowhurst was dressed as a girl until the age of seven. Hmm. 
After India gained its independence, his family moved back to England. The family's retirement savings were invested in an Indian sporting goods factory, which later burned down during the rioting after the partition of India. So financial turmoil is uh, the name of Crowhurst's life. (laughs) Crowhurst's father died in 1948, and because of the family financial problems, Crowhurst was forced to leave school early and started a five-year apprenticeship at the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnuch. Farnborough Airfield. In 1953, he received a Royal Air Force commission as a pilot, but was asked to leave in 1954 for reasons that remain unclear, and was subsequently commissioned into the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers in 1956. So, got a smart engineer kind of guy. Um, after leaving the Army in the same year, owing to a disciplinary incident, Crowhurst eventually moved to Bridgewater, where he started a business called Electron Utilization. He was a member of the Liberal Party and was elected to Bridgewater Borough Council. So, you know, a man about town. Yeah, right. You know. yeah. Crowhurst, a weekend sailor, designed and built a radio direction finder called the Navigator, a handheld device that allowed the user to take bearings on marine and aviation radio beacons. While he did have some success selling his equipment, his business began to fail. In an effort to gain publicity, he started trying to gain sponsors to enter the Sunday Times Golden Globe race. His main sponsor was English entrepreneur Stanley Best, who had invested heavily in Crowhurst's failing business. Once committed to the race, Crowhurst mortgaged both his business and home against Best's continued financial support, placing himself himself, himself. himself in a great financial situation himself <laughs> there you go that's my singing that's weekly yeah. weekly tune <clears throat> i promised emily i would sing there you go <laughs> true story um so yeah on to his boat the boat crowhurst built for the voyage the tainmouth electron is what he named it was a modified 40-foot trimaran designed by californian arthur piver at the time, this was an unproven type of boat for a voyage of such length. Trimarans have the potential to sail much more quickly than monohulled sailboats, but early designs in particular could be very slow if overloaded and had considerable difficulty sailing close to the wind. So, like, the, the degree at which you were sailing against okay, the wind. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Crowhurst had a very short time in which to build and equip his boat while securing financing and sponsors for the race. In the end, all of his safety devices were left uncompleted. He planned to complete them while underway. Also, many of his spares and supplies were left behind in the confusion of the final preparations. To top all this, Crowhurst had never sailed on a trimaran before taking delivery of his boat several weeks before the beginning of the race. Always a good idea. Things are sounding really good. Right. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I thought I had included it in my notes, but the the path of the race, you know, you start in Britain, you're going to sail south down the Atlantic all the way to the uh, southern tip of Africa. That's uh, the Cape of Good Hope. Right. And you come around that, you're going to sail South Seas, Indian Ocean, south of Australia, go south of South America, that's uh, Cape Horn, and then back up north through the Atlantic, back to where you started. All right. So that's their, their path. Ugh. Yeah, things get it's like... a long trip. And things definitely, supposedly, <clears throat> allegedly, get very difficult once you get, you know, past that Cape of Good Hope down there. Like oh, it's yeah, a, yeah. Like a different beast of sailing down there though so, hmm. intense and this guy's got this boat a trimaran i looked up a picture of it it's uh like three floaties think of three floaties you know <laughs> seems like a good idea yeah i mean it apparently uh it seems like it's like the precursor to like an episode of uh i survived 
<laughs> right? Yeah. Seven years well, later, I came out know, from this island. You probably feel something. Like There's some foreboding in this story, right? Like, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm having a feeling that like everything's not going to be perfect. For sure. <laughs> right. So, yeah. What fun would that be? Um, on the 13th of October, so he hasn't even left yet. Deadline's October 31st. But on the 13th of October, an experienced sailor, Lieutenant Commander Peter Eden, volunteered to accompany Crowhurst in his boat from Cowes to Tainmouth. Eden's description of his two days with Kerhurst provides the most expert independent assessment available for both boat and sailor before the start of the race. He recalls that the trimaran sailed immensely swiftly, but could get no closer to the wind than 60 degrees. The speed often reached 12 knots, but the vibrations encountered caused the screws on the Hassler self-steering gear to come loose. Eden Eden said, we had to keep leaning over the counter to do up the screws. It was a tricky and time-consuming business. I told Crowhurst he should get the fixings welded if he wanted to survive a longer trip. Eden reported that Crowhurst's sailing techniques were good, but I felt his navigation was a mite slapdash. I prefer, even in the channel, to know exactly where I am. He didn't take too much bother with it, merely jotting down figures on a few sheets of paper from time to time. After struggling against westerlies and having to tack out into the channel twice, they arrived at 2.30 p.m. on the 15th of October, where an enthusiastic BBC film crew started filming Eden in the belief he was Crowhurst. There were 16 days to get ready before the race's deadline on the 31st. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, oh, look, there's my thing about the route. Whatever. I covered the route of the race. The route. The route of the race. The route of the race. And I've talked about the winner. I put a bunch of information in here twice, as usual. That's all right, though. Overdoing it, sometimes a little better than underdoing it. Huh? Yeah, that's what she said. Listener, do you agree? That's what she said. Yeah, I'm sure she did at some point in time. That's true. (laughs) So, um, to start out, there are nine participants in the race. That includes Donald Crowhurst. Okay. All of the others, um, not going to name all of them, but all of the others had um, a lot more experience than Donald Crowhurst, though he did have some experience sailing. Like something like this just kind of seemed <clears throat> to anyone that knew him was like, hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like the, the isolation alone. You That's got to be it, tough. Right. Yeah. It's like, you, you think sailing about sailing with people is already right. tough, and then you do it by yourself. Is even yeah, and I mean, the two of us don't mind spending time alone, but it's like, yeah, <laughs> like however many. Yeah, but that's out. alone on land, <laughs> right? Well, you have options. Basically, on this boat, there are no options. <clears throat> yeah, you can look yeah. off this side or the that side. Yeah. Like, so he sets off on the very last day possible, October 31st. Brilliant idea yeah. already. Um, Good of the, thinking. <laughs> right. So everyone else has already started before him. Um, of the nine sailors starting the race, four retired before leaving the Atlantic Ocean. So of the five remaining, Che Blythe, who had set off with absolutely no sailing experience, sailed past the Cape of Good Hope before retiring. Nigel Tetley sank with 1,100 nautical miles to go while leading, so he was almost back home. Bernard Moitessier, who rejected, yeah, thank you, thank you, who rejected the philosophy behind a commercialized competition, abandoned the race while in a strong position to win, and kept sailing nonstop until he reached Tahiti after circling the globe one and a half times. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, that guy's actually the winner in my book. (laughs) What was his name? It was uh, Bernard Moitessier. 
Ah, and then he just like lived out his days in Tahiti. (laughs) You're right. Yeah, he was like, you know, well, he got to Tahiti. I think he had had some like boat problems and uh, like. That's funny. My guy is that guy that you're talking about. Is it really? No, No, wouldn't that be crazy? That'd be weird. Yeah, yeah, then we'd have to have a picture of us as sailors or something. (laughs) From From Crowhurst journals and logbook, it is obvious that things were going poorly for him right from the start. So November 5th, he writes, Hell of a morning, was feeling pleased with myself, but then I noticed bubbles from the forward hatch. The boat's compartment is full, full in all caps, of water. November 7th, more screws have fallen out of the self-steering gear. That's four gone now. The cockpit has been leaking and flooded the engine compartment and electrics. The boat is falling to pieces. So yeah, several weeks into the journey, he had no working electronics, no viable radio, no way to tell time, and no lights. The boat was leaking 30 gallons per day, the cockpit letting in 75 gallons at night. He would also discover that his sails were not cut to the correct size. The further south he would go, the more treacherous the conditions of the ocean. So his hope hope early on was that if the waters stayed calm, he could get by with bailing water out of the boat all the time using buckets. That seems like a brilliant idea. Yeah, The South Seas are notorious for not being calm. In the Atlantic, (laughs) Crowhurst was averaging 60 miles per day. Others still in the race were averaging twice that. It seemed to Crowhurst at this point that he had only two options, keep going and likely die in the Southern Ocean, or give up and face financial ruin, while also bringing embarrassment to his family and himself. So um, he... What did he decide to do? Well, he comes up with a third option. (laughs) All right. He has a third option. Um, He soon, uh, soon starts recording stats that claimed an improvement from 60 miles per day to 243. By mid-December, he claimed to be preparing to round the Cape of Good Hope. He was being considered amongst the fastest competitors. He had begun fabricating fabricating his positions using two separate logbooks. One logbook would record his fictionalized positions, and the other would be his actual positions. I'm reading from my notes now, by the way. (laughs) So, yeah, if there are any errors, they are mine. He, like, moving away from the microphone. Sorry, everybody. (laughs) One logbook, oh wait, he felt that his lies would provide his family with hope and pride and would allow him to feel the same once he returned home. Although once he returned home, he would be living that lie for the rest of his life. His last reported position had him off the coast of Madagascar. That was his fictionalized reported position off the coast of Madagascar beyond the Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian Ocean. When in actuality, he was closer to the coast of Brazil and still in the Atlantic. He knew there was no way he could go into the South Seas, but also knew that he couldn't go home. Crowhurst planned to wait it out in the Atlantic until the other sailors came around Cape Horn and back into the Atlantic. Once he was able, he would slip in behind the other sailors and no one would know the difference. Once this decision was made, he cuts all contact with anyone. He would now be entirely isolated from the rest of the world. So at this point, it had, I had said his radio wasn't working, but it was like he could get it working, it, although it was still hard to get a signal. So. Right, okay. But yeah. he, at this point, was choosing not to even try. Like he was going right. to like say that his radio was busted. And huh. <laughs> yeah. Seems yeah. like a really honest guy. Yeah. At this point in time, his logbook, slash journal entries will become more philosophical and abstract, perhaps even unhinged. A couple of examples, um, he writes, the rigging sighs a cosmic sigh for weeping doves that die maybe tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, yeah, a little melancholy, right? All right. And so, well, uh, he has plenty of time because he's not really sailing. Right, <laughs> right yeah, he's just hanging out. <laughs> I mean, he's sailing a little bit, I guess, you know, but yeah, yeah he can he's only floating. Right. If he's floating, he's taking in less water, I'm sure. So, right. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. 
So the next thing he writes, 12.7 by 10 to the five irradiated olive trees, a side of fill man's soul with melancholy. Waves sweep away my melancholy. So yeah, he's, uh, All right. he's, he's doing some stuff to his mind out there. His boat's hull would eventually split right down the middle, and he would realize that he needed to get it repaired or he would sink before being able to see his plan through. Out of desperation, he sailed to a naval outpost off the coast of Argentina, the naval officer that met him there would later recall Crowhurst as emaciated, distraught, and nervous. This trip to Argentina likely made it more difficult for Crowhurst mentally. Out at sea, you grow accustomed to being alone, but once you go inland, you, quote, break the seal. <laughs> I did that myself, ah, so to speak, and going one. back into isolation is that much more difficult. All of the fake position entries would have been extremely difficult to fabricate. Fabricate? having trouble with that word, as he would accurately need to record positions and times for places and instances that he had never been. Many would say that faking the journey is cognitively more difficult than just doing it. Yeah, yeah, especially if you don't know it. <laughs> right. From Wikipedia, over the course of November and December 1968, the hopelessness of his situation pushed him into an elaborate deception. And I'm kind of going over some of the same stuff again, but... in different words, although I'm not going to. I think I wrote it pretty well, to be quite honest with you. I don't need that. <clears throat> um, sorry, guys. How you doing over there? I'm good. Yeah, you doing, doing all, all right? right? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I just lost my place here. All right. That's always yep. a plus. You're just like right. him. You're just making it up as you go. <laughs> Chris, Chris, Co Chris Crowhurst. While his supposed position was inferred by extrapolation based on his early reports, so the guy, the people at home writing about him, trying to keep the crowds excited, like trying to keep hope in his family and everything, like they are basing everything they know on how fast he was going the last time he reported to them. Right, yeah. So they're only making guesses at where they think he is at this point in time. By early December, based on his false reports, he was saying, um, he w I'm sorry, he was being cheered worldwide as the likely winner of the fastest circumnavigation prize, though Frank Francis Chichester privately expressed doubts about the possibility of Crowhurst's progress. A little <clears> jealousy, perhaps? Maybe. Ch -ch Chichester? That's the Chichester yeah. way. Right. After rounding the tip of South America in early February, Moitessier had made a dramatic decision in March to drop out of the race and sail on towards Tahiti. On the 22nd of April 1969, Robin Knox Johnston was the first to complete the race, leaving Crowhurst supposedly in the running against Tetley for second to finish, and still able to beat Knox Johnston's time because of his later starting date. In reality, Tetley was far in the lead, leaving long having long ago passed within 150 nautical miles of Crowhurst's hiding place, but believing himself to be neck and neck with Crowhurst. Tetley pushed his failing boat, also a 40-foot Piver trimaran, to breaking point and had to abandon ship on the 30th of May. He did survive that. The pressure on Crowhurst had therefore increased since he now looks certain to win the elapsed time race. If he appeared to have completed the fastest circumnavigation, his logbooks would be closely <laughs> examined by experienced sailors, including the experienced and skeptical Chichester, and the deception would probably be exposed. It is also likely that he felt guilty about undermining Tetley's genuine circumnavigation so near its completion. He had by this time begun to make his way back as if he had rounded Cape Horn. At this point, Crowhurst seems to have given up. He allows his boat to drift into the Sargasso Sea, where he simply floats aimlessly. Sargasso Sea is like a area, I guess it's a gyre, is that how you pronounce that? G-Y-R-E? Gyre, yeah. It's a, like a gyre in the kind of center of the Atlantic, where lo lots of different currents kind of yeah, go yeah, around yeah. it, and so it's very calm. 
And there's lots of like <clears throat> seaweeds and plastic stuff. now. It probably lots it's of plastic. Just all plastic yeah. now. But uh, so he's floating around there, just kind of. All right. You know, no one knows at this point what what he was doing because everyone, you know, eventually that he never comes back. <laughs> All right. So Crowhurst's behavior, as recorded in his logs, indicates a complex and troubled psychological state. This is from Wikipedia, by the way. His commitment to fabricating the voyage report seems incomplete and self-defeating, as he reported unrealistically fast progress that was sure to arouse suspicion. By contrast, he spent many hours painstakingly constructing false log entries, often more difficult to complete than real entries, because of the celestial navigation research required. So, yeah, if you're not there to see where you are, then... Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you're doing it based on what you think you're going to see, but yeah. <laughs> right. The last several weeks of his log entries, <clears throat> once he was facing the real possibility of winning the prize, showed increasing irrationality. His biographers, Nicholas Tomlin and Ron Hall, believed that faced with a choice between two impossible situations, either admit his fraud and then face public shame and likely financial ruin, or return home to a fraudulent hero's reception and then have to live with the guilt and possible subsequent unmasking. Crowhurst descended into a classical paranoia, a psychotic disorder in which diluted ideas are built into a complex, intricate structure. On 24th of June, he began to document these thoughts in a new set of writings in his second logbook entitled Just Philosophy. Although rambling and incoherent at times, he was attempting to set down for the benefit of mankind a, quote, revelation or new understanding that he believed he had discovered regarding the rela relationship between man and the universe. Um, yeah, so his philosophy, life as experienced by man, was a game overseen by cosmic beings, apparently God or several <clears throat> gods, and the devil who set the rules by which the game was played. However, man could, by an effort of will, become one such second-generation cosmic being himself, and thereby withdraw from the game on his own terms if he so wished. He would then enter a world of abstract intelligence, the realm of the gods, in which he would have no need for his body or any of the other trappings of daily life. At one point, he wrote that this revelation made him happy. He says, that is how I solve the problem, and to let you inside my soul, which is now at peace, I give you my book. I am lucky. I have done something interesting at last. At last, my system has noticed me. Um, All right, so he's yeah. losing that thing. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, at points, his writings um, are documenting mental arguments he's having with himself, with Albert Einstein, or with God. They reveal a Excellent. tortured soul on the brink of self-destruction. While suicide is not explicitly mentioned in an escape, as an escape route, Tomlin and Hall believe that Crowhurst, whether or not he was admitting it to himself, was groping towards this eventuality with phrases such as, quote, the quick are quick and the dead are dead. That is a judgment of God. I could not have endured the terrible anguish and meaningless waiting, in fact. As well as, quote, man is forced to certain conclusions by virtue of his mistakes. Hmm. He continued his writings for a week, eventually amounting to more than 25,000 words. At 10 a.m. on the 1st of July, by his own reckoning, since in his meditations he had admitted to wind his chrono uh, <coughs> chronometer and had to subsequently restart it. So, who knows what time it was. Crowhurst commenced uh, what Tomlin and Hall believed to be his final confession, also incorporating in their view a count of hours, minutes, and seconds toward the time at which he had decided that he would end the game by committing suicide. His Observations over the next 80 minutes are generally cryptic and or incomplete, but include hints such as 10, 23, and 40 seconds cannot see any purpose in game. 10, 25, and 10 must resign position in sense that if set myself impossible task, then nothing achieved by game. 
10.29, now has revealed the true nature and purpose and power of the game offense. I am what I am, and I see the nature of my offense. It is finished, it is finished, it is the mercy. 11.15, it is the end of my repeated game, the truth has been revealed, and it will all be done as my family require me to do it. 11.17, it is the time for your move to begin. I have not <clears throat> dot 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 need to prolong the game it has been a good game that must be ended at the missing words i will play this game when i choose i will resign the game Eleven twenty. there is no reason for harmful and then that's the last thing he wrote oh wow <laughs> yeah it is unclear from the spacing whether eleven twenty forty was the time of his last entry or whether it runs on from the preceding wording as his intended time for his ultimate action Likewise, while the phrase, it is the mercy, is obscure, most commentators have accepted that it signifies his relief that at last he is leaving an unbearable situation. Tomlin and Hall conjecture that included in his last writings, not all, <clears throat> not at all, re ugh, not all reproduced above, were sentences that cover Crowhurst's internal debate over whether or not to leave the evidence of his actual rather than faked journey to po for posterity, to, ugh, posterity <laughs> to see and that he decided that the former was the better course. In the event, it was the true logbook that was left behind, and the fake one, if it ever existed, disappeared. So, you know, he left oh, behind wow. the lie. But Crowhurst completely ended radio transmissions on the 29th of, of June. It is believed that his radio may have been completely non-functioning at this point. I said that. The uh, last logbook entry was from July 1st. And, uh... And then they found his boat floating on the 10th of July. And I wrote in my notes, how the hell did they find it so quickly? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I'm like, shit, these days we can't do that. Right. But like, oh, yeah. But, yeah, some, uh, some like, fishermen came upon it and, you know. Well, he was just hanging out near somewhere. At that yeah, point, I guess so. so. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like he was in the middle of the ocean, I guess. Right. Maybe. I mean. But um, Robin Knox Johnston would be the only entrant to complete the race, becoming the first man to sail single-handed and non-stop around the world. He was awarded both prizes, the trophy and the 5,000 pounds, and later donated the money to a fund supporting Crowhurst's family. Jonathan Rabin, the author of The Strange Last Voyage of Donald Crowhurst, has written that the meaning of Crowhurst's voyage has altered greatly since the 1970s book, first publication in 1970. Crowhurst <laughs> was seen as a hoaxer who came to a pathetic end. Now he's more likely to be viewed as uh, as a tragic hero, a tortured soul, an involuntary exile from the stable world. Tainmouth Electron has become like a ship in an allegory, a vessel to transport the reader beyond the known world into a strange and lonely realm where the reader, too, will lose his bearings and face the ultimate disintegration of the self in the cruel laboratory of the sea. Very dramatic. Oh, yeah. Tomlin and Hall, his biographers, wrote in their 1970 book, Previously, we knew little about the personality of Crowhurst. As we investigated further, it emerged as one of the most extraordinary stories of human aspiration and human failure that as journalists we have never had, we have never, we have never had to record. Although it is basically a story about heroics, there is no hero, but neither is there a villain. Crowhurst, despite his deceptions, was a man of courage and intelligence who acted as he did because of intol intolerable circumstances. The fact that he paid a far greater penalty than he needed to is testament to his quality. So, yeah. Hmm. Indeed. All right. Yeah, Donald Crowhurst, everybody. Donald There's Crowhurst. There's excellent uh, documentary I watched, shoot, over 15 years ago for the first time called Deep Water. 
and that's where I heard this story for the first oh, time. Okay. In watching the movie, uh, I mean, I've given it away now, but you're halfway through it before you realize, wait, he's going to fake this. <laughs> right. Like you don't realize, like you're all you're all caught up in it too, and then you're like, wait, hold on, he hasn't been doing it. Okay. And so they kind of pull it out from under you later on in the documentary, and it's like, oh crap. All right. So yeah, it's kind of hmm. neat. The well, way that's they interesting. Do it, but, yeah. So. So yeah, worth a All watch. Right. It's uh, well, for free on like Free V right now. Free V, yeah, Free V, somewhere on uh, streaming somewhere. Um, the one, the, the movie that my guy's about is on like Plurry. Plurry. Yeah, I've never even heard of it. But like, you got to pay for a subscription to watch it. I was like, I can't watch. Oh, it. oh, the movie. Oh, I'm the sorry. movie. That, yeah, the, yeah, that, yeah, there's yeah, a movie yeah. about my guy. And <laughs> thought you were on, saying it was called Plurry. No, it's the movie is on a streaming site called. Plurry, which I've never even once in my life heard of. So yeah, I mean, right? Yeah, I, have to, I haven't heard of um, that either. But so we'll talk about my guy now, who is. <laughs> uh, speaking of the movie, we'll get to the movie that is about him <laughs> soon. I can't wait. Um, Mine was a little long, so I apologize. It, it, yeah, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> it went way longer than I thought it was going to. It's fine. I'll just chester. read mine faster. Yeah. <laughs> We've both been stumbling our way through this one, so yeah. yeah I mean, I, was, I did all right there for us. a bit, and then oof. Yeah, you just fabricated the, the, <laughs> some stuff, but whatever. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be perfect on mine, so yeah. don't worry. All right, my guy's name is uh, Doctor William Chester Minor. Um, okay. So it's not Moi Tessier. No, it'll be kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, old Doctor Minor, M I N O R Minor. Oh, minor. Uh, he went by. WC, so I'll use both. W. Um, he was born 1834 in Ceylon, which is modern day Sri Lanka. All right. So, oh, right. It's like the T. Ceylon T. Oh, yeah. C E Y L O N. C E Y L O N. Yep. Uh, his parents were named Eastman Strong Minor and Lucy Bailey. <clears throat> um, they were uh, congressional church, congregational church minister see there we go Mini- <laughs> something in the missionaries air. <laughs> yes definitely. they were calvinists basically uh calvinists from new england um they were doing uh <clears throat> mission work in sri lanka um he had lots of half siblings uh it didn't really specify how many but one of them ended up being the mayor of seattle starting in 1887 oh. his name was thomas t minor tt um wc tt Maybe. May um, W.C. was said to have a, a huge intellect. And he was highly literate, musical, and artistic. My, what a big intellect he had. Definitely. He painted, <laughs> he played the flute, and spoke several languages. And he would have lascivious, is that right? Yeah. Lascivious thoughts about oh. the local girls and also showed <laughs> early signs of mental illness. So he was a little bit everywhere. So are they saying lascivious thoughts about local girls are a sign of mental illness? <clears throat> no, that was just on top of all the other <laughs> things that he would have, right? right. He, paint the, he painted, played the flute, spoke languages, thought about the girls, and then also suffered from mental illness. Yeah. So this is 1834, so or 18, mid-1800s by now. Yeah, so yeah, I mean... You know, everybody had, you know, he's a witch. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be a tough life. Because of all of his problematic thoughts, and he, at age 14, he was sent to the United States, uh, where he lived with an uncle in New Haven, Connecticut, and started to attend Russell Military Academy. So, I guess they're trying to 
Straighten him up. Whip him into shape. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he finishes Russell and then gets then enrolls himself into uh, the Yale School of Medicine. So, like I said, he's a smart okay, guy. So it worked. <laughs> yeah, sort of. You'll see. Uh, while attending Yale, he worked as an instructor at the Russell Academy and also as an assistant on the uh, 1864 revision of uh, Webster's Dictionary. I think we got another killer on our hands here. Um, in 1863, W.C. graduated with a medical degree from Yale and a specialization in comparative anatomy. And at the time, it took just how many years do you think it took to become a surgeon back then? Two. Two years, exactly. <laughs> wow. Um, after graduating, he joined the Union Army and was posted to what's called Knight U.S. Army General Hospital in New Haven. Huh. Knight K.N.? K-N-I-G-H-T, yes. Yeah, just for all you folks that want to Google along K-Night. with us. K-Night. Um, while he was uh, there at the Knight Army General Hospital, uh, he published a book, and, and the book was published, and he, people from there were part of the book. W.C. writes about a number of post-mortem examination, examinations that he carried out, and uh, <clears throat> it said that they were... Uh, Written pretty elegantly, but pretty gruesome as well. Huh. Um, like the blood and guts. Yeah, he's a he's a smart guy. He's like a wordsmith, you know. Wordsmith. Uh, most of his autopsy subjects that year had fallen ill in the field. You know, this is during the Civil War at this point. With uh, unusual lung ailments, including typhus, typhoid pneumonia, pleurisy, and pithesis, or Pith. with Pith. tuberculosis. Pithesis. Other people had succumbed to more familiar stuff like uh, choking or al- acute alcoholism. Um, in 1863, Miner published an article in 18 in uh, Yale's American Journal of Science and Arts, and uh, it regarded the ability of certain worms to regener- regenerate after being cut apart. So, like he was, hmm. you know, a studied guy. Like, yeah, yeah, and appreciated. Um, <clears throat> The, yeah. The study. But he still had some demons, okay? Yeah. A few months after being at Knight General, he was reassigned to Virginia to be closer to where the Civil War was really going down. And he's a surgeon. Hey, 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 um He served at the Battle of the Wilderness, and there's a little bit of questioning on this, but uh, that was in May of 1864. Uh, the Battle of the Wilderness was notable because the horrible casualties, including people burning alive and mutilations, around 28,000 casualties were just during that one battle. Oh, wow. Um, he was forced to brand the letter D on the face of an Irish deserter who was also a member of what was called the Finian Brotherhood, which sought to end British rule in Ireland at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, mercenaries. Right. Uh, there's conflicting reports to some of this stuff because uh, historians disagree that the Union Army used branding as punishment. And uh, other records don't really place him showing up to the hospital in Alexandria until May 17th, and the Battle of the Wilderness took place between May 5th and 7th. Hmm. Um, but I, this is all, the Civil War is going on all over the place. These right. things are affecting his mental illness. Um and it also is starting to 
uh, build this fear that he has for uh, Irish retaliation because of that branding that he oh, may or may right, not have right. done. Right? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, this carried on throughout his life, okay? You'll see. Um, after the war ended, so 1865, right, uh, W.C. relocated to New York and continued his service there. Uh, while living in New York, it says he was, quote, strongly drawn to the red light district well. and would spend increasing amounts of time and money frequenting frequenting women of the evening. Yeah, calming those lascivious thoughts of yes. the local girls. Oh, yeah. And by 1867, Williams' behavior had become increasingly bizarre, and he was transferred to a post in the Florida Panhandle. So trying to get him, this was a more isolated post, get him away from the hose, <laughs> Get him right? away from people. Um, <laughs> and by 1868, his behavior had become so worrisome that he was admitted to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a lunatic asylum located in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So for the next 18 months, he was there, and his behavior uh, started to improve a little bit. And so he was allowed to – it wasn't enough, so he was allowed to resign his commission on the grounds of, quote – this is what they used to call it uh, – incapacitated by causes arising in the line of duty. And uh, he started to receive his army pension. So hmm. they are like, look – we appreciate your service. You can't, you're just losing it. You can't go over there. Right. Um, 1871, WC moved to Lambeth, which is uh, what is now called Waterloo Station in South London. Uh, back then, it was a slum. Uh, there's a poverty map that was written by Charles Booth, and uh, it marks many of the streets in this area as either uh, poor, very poor, uh, with casual chronic want or uh, lowest class vicious semi-criminal. So this wow. isn't the best area. Right. Well, vicious. What do you think happened when he when he moved to this shitty area? He became vicious? Well, no. He started hoeing again. He started, started hoeing. He started going back on the streets and like... He was gardening? Yes. He, no, he went on the streets and was finding more... Uh, Ladies, yeah, finding ladies of the night, yes, or girls and, of the evening, or yeah, whatever it was you said earlier, ladies of the evening, yeah. <laughs> um, so woman this, of the evening. he started hoeing again, and then he also his instability and paranoia became more and more of a problem. Hmm. All right, so and at this point, he started having delusions that he was being chased by Irishmen who were angry about the branding oh, wow. that he had done. Right. Gosh, this man. is in London, right? Yeah. So probably not. Yeah. Who knows? Like you're beyond that at this point, my friend. Yeah. Um. So this culminates, and then late in the evening of February seventeenth, eighteen seventy-two, William wakes up in his house, believing that someone was trying to get into his room. So he got up, grabbed his gun, and uh, chased them out of the, out of the house and into the streets. All right. Just started shooting blindly, shoots four shots, and instead of hitting anybody that intruded, he hits this guy named George Merritt uh, twice in the neck. Oh. Uh, George was a 34-year-old stoker for a brewery, so stokers were people that kept the fire going. Uh, I was going to make a smoking joke. Yep. Yeah, <clears throat> there you go. Um, 
And George also was a father of six with one on the way. Oh, wow. And he was shot twice in the neck, and uh, they got him to the hospital, and he was pronounced dead on arrival at St. Thomas's Hospital. Lord. So that was in February. Uh, April 6th, uh, W.C. was found not guilty in the murder charge on grounds of insanity, and he was detained in, uh, this is what they call, until Her Majesty's pleasure be known. So until uh, he's... the. The state lets him go. Yeah, yeah. T. What is it? TB. Uh, TBD. To yeah. be decided. To, to be determined. Me, yeah. Took me a while to get out. Um, so he was guilty on that, and then he was uh, certified a criminal lunatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so WC was sent to a place called Broadmoor, which is in Berkshire. I've heard of Broadmoor. Bro- Broadmoor's a insane asylum, yeah. right? Uh, and since WC had a U.S. Army pension, so he was still getting money, and he still was actually pretty well off. He was a surgeon before, so he had right. some money. He was judged not dangerous, uh, and he was given two rooms instead the magic of one. Of money. <laughs> two cells instead of one. So he had these adjoining cells, right? Right. And he was allowed to buy and use books and Wells painting materials and a flute. And wow. There's, yeah. there's actually his flutes are like some that are collected. Somebody just bought one a few years back for tens of thousands of dollars. Oh wow! I mean, I guess because the guy is who he is, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> so he builds one of the rooms that turn into a library. So he brings all of his books along. He's allowed to bring all this stuff. You know, rich guy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, man. And uh, soon after he gets there, uh, he reaches out to Eliza Merritt, who's the wife of George, who WC killed. Right. Uh, he, he, they reached out to one another, and she, he would start to help pay, help her with money some. All right. She had seven kids at that point, right? And eventually she asked to visit WC in Broadmoor. Uh, they requested her, they, they granted her request, sorry, and soon she began to visit him almost monthly, and they became friendly with each other. Friends. They became friendly not, with not each friendly other. Not friendly like that, as yeah. far as I could tell. They uh, weren't like, you know. Getting friendly with each other. Doing whatever they did back in the 1870s. The 18 gigawatts? The 18 scaries, as you called them before. <laughs> the 18 scaries. Um, <laughs> that whenever, was funny. Whenever Eliza, was it Eliza? It was a lie, though. I thought it, <laughs> I, I thought I misspoke. Uh, Whenever she would come to visit, she would bring books that she collected from various shops to bring them. He was really into books, and they would trade books, you know. Um, and he even, at one point, he had his library, and at one point, he even employed another inmate as a servant. So, I mean, he had oh, wow. money. He had his little... He had employees. Thing. Right. I mean... Um, and at the time, servants, yeah, yeah crazy servant, right? This, yeah. this person is also in the criminally insane, <laughs> right? Um, so at the time they were putting out, they were, when books were put out, they were also there were flyers put into some books, and they were put out by this guy named Doctor James Murray, and these flyers, which were eight pages, which is a little bit big, bigger than yeah, a flyer, yeah, but you know right. whatever. Um, Doctor James Murray was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. And in these flyers, they would ask for new readers to find words and quotations to put in the dictionary. Hmm. 
This is the story I thought it was going to be. This yeah, is, uh, yeah. what's that? I said, I think this is the story okay. I thought it was so, going to be. Um, basically, back then, it was like, try to find the first usage of a word, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, fascinating stuff, really. Yeah. It's, Eventually, uh, because of all these books that this guy gets, one of these flyers made its way to WC. And at the time, um, since the OED was new, it began work. They began work on it in 1857, but it wasn't until 1884 that it began to be published in like 20 or 30 editions at once. Like this was yeah, huge. Yeah, it's like the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right, but this is all words, and <laughs> yeah. uh, they would use at that point they would trace the development of words using quotations, um, including the first known use of a word. And they would simply record words in their usage, current and obsolete, without judgment, they said. Okay, so contributors were asked to find passages in literature to inform their definitions. So, hmm. while WC's chilling in his library, painting and playing the flute. Painting, reading. In his, making, at the Looney Band. Yeah. Um, he began to record words and quotations. Um, so, after a time, he didn't... Uh, he didn't see Eliza as much. She became an alcoholic, and hmm. he just spent more and more time with his new job, which was researching well, words. Well, that and being in prison, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah it seems like it's his good His new for occupation him. is re researching words. And from what I could tell, over the next 30 years or so, uh, WC would become a principal contributor to the OED. Um, he used his large library of 16th to 19th century books, and he compiled as many as 20,000 quotations to the first edition of the OED. Wow. So Damn. when he would send these in, he would always sign his letters to Dr. Murray the same way. He'd sign them Dr. W.C. Minor, Broadmoor, Crowthorne, Berkshire. And Dr. Murray thought that William was a doctor at Broadmoor and not a patient for almost 10 years. Oh, uh, wow. So we had no idea yeah. that this was like a patient there. Um, and in 1891, Murray went to visit WC. Uh, they continued to, they actually became friends again, and he continued to visit him for many years. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, Murray said about Miner's comp contributions to the OED that uh, we could easily illustrate the last four centuries from his quotations alone. Yeah, that's impressive. Um but because of his problems over the years, his condition kept going worse and worse and worse. And in 1902, William began having delusions that he was being, uh, being abducted nightly from his room. Is it still the Irishman? No, this, this time this time they would take him as far away as Istanbul. Oh wow! And which is not constant; it's now Constantinople, whatever. Um, and he was being forced to do things to children while he was in these kidnapping scenarios right. in his mind uh, to stop these things from happening. WC performed what's called a auto pencotomy. Ah, uh, the old auto pencotomy. Yes. Which is don't look this up. If you don't really want to see anything because he cut yep. off his own dick. Yep. Not looking it up. Uh, he used the knife that they, they gave him to work on the dictionary. And I don't know why you'd give, this guy a knife to begin with but yeah, like what well, do you need, you need a knife it. for a dictionary <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah, that's... you brought a knife to a dictionary fight yeah yeah you're doing it wrong um yeah and so now he's like getting crazier he's dickless 
<laughs> I mean, at least he's, it was he's, he's probably not. He's not probably not doing much at this point with the with the dick. With the uh, that, the dick or the the uh, encyclopedia oh, or the right. dictionary, sorry. I mean, he's got to be in some pretty good pain. Yeah. I imagine that back then um, is not the time to cut off your own no, dick. Well, they, nor they, is any time. But, I, they, he's you know. lucky they didn't use a saw. That's yeah. what they used to use. They'll time travel to 1901 to cut off your own dick. Right. Yeah. Um, and for the next few years after that, his condition kept going downhill. I'd say it did. Uh, 1910, his buddy Murray campaigned a uh, guy that's a, he was 35-year-old the home secretary of uh great britain at the time he's a 35 year old named uh you might have heard the name winston churchill oh yeah uh yeah. murray campaigned to churchill and uh wc was allowed to return to the united states to the same mental hospital in dc that he was in 42 years earlier wow it's like and, a homecoming yeah i guess uh, while he was there, he's finally diagnosed with uh, dementia praecox, which was the early name for schizophrenia. Uh, yeah. um, in 1919, WC was transferred from St. Elizabeth's to a place called the Retreat for the Elderly Insane. Oh wow! Which I don't know how you hire people for that place. Like, <sighs> hey, we got a job. Where is it? Uh, it's uh, the Retreat for the Elderly Insane. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you get punished to that job <laughs> right uh this was in hartford connecticut and he uh, lived there until march 26 1920 when he died from pneumonia at the age of 85 and fully institutionalized like most of his most life. of his life yeah. yeah um he was buried at evergreen cemetery in new haven hmm. um there's a book called the professor and the madman yeah. by simon winchester it was published in 1998 and then there's uh in 2019 the Professor and the Madman, starring Mel Gibson as Murray and Sean Penn as uh, W.C., was released. Uh, <clears throat> I couldn't remember if Sean Penn was the other one. Yeah, it's called The Professor and the Madman. That's on Plurry. Yeah. Uh, it's got a 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I don't know. Yeah, I've been. Uh, this was on my list of uh, a name to do eventually. So, oh, really? Yeah, okay. This could have been one that we might have ended up doing it. Well, the now same we can't. Time, but yeah, now we can't. Um, there's and an I episode. I won't be doing it. I was telling you about this earlier. <laughs> there's an episode of Drunk History where Bob Odenkirk is uh, plays minor. Oh right. When they yeah. when some I can't I can't I don't know who the person is that's drunk telling the story, but Bob Odenkirk is the is the character <laughs> WC. Chester Minor, William Chester Minor. Uh, he was one of the most prolific contributors to the OED. He was a surgeon, a flautist, a painter, a murderer, and a schizophrenic. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The professor and the madman. Yeah. It looks like it might be pretty decent. So. Yeah. Yeah. When uh, I first started working in bookstores, that book was selling like crazy. Really? It's a definitely like, an interesting yeah, yeah, story. Yeah. yeah and it I, is. I'd say they probably cut out at least one scene that involved cutting. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, certainly it was in the book. I'm sure that but, it was yeah, there, yeah. but I don't know how much it was in the movie. Right, yeah, you're probably not actually But I mean, at that point, if Mel, Gibson, Mel Gibson's company, Icon, owns the rights to it, so he can do whatever he wants. Right. He's doing it all. Like, Hollywood doesn't want anything to do with him. probably why it's harder to find right now, too. It seems like that movie you should be able to find pretty easy if you want yeah, to watch Yeah, but I mean, it, he but... made, like, a movie in Aztec language that killed. Yeah. And because they don't want anything to do with him, so he just does it himself. Yeah. Like, you know. So, 
Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's like, hey, you do your thing, buddy. But yeah, yeah, well, probably so. just if you do it, don't do it on audio recordings, and, <laughs> right? Whatever. It's like I still want to like those movies with you in them that I like so. Oh, much. I still like, like a lot yeah, of Mel yeah, Gibson yeah. movies. Yeah, but me too. That doesn't mean he's not a piece Especially of shit. Especially Mad Max, but yeah, you know, I like Michael Jackson music. That doesn't take away that. Yeah, he most yeah. likely did that thing. Yeah, like, allegedly. <laughs> right, allegedly. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, that's my guy for the week. Yeah, it was a good one. They were both good ones. So, yeah. Um, we both had Mad Men. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah, maybe we can do some uh, Mad Men. I sense here. a title coming on. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> this is how we figure it out, with you along for the ride. Yeah, so, why not? Um, if you got any titles, email us. Yeah, definitely. Um, podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, hit us up on the email. Um, if you see something on Facebook or Instagram, share it for us. Spread the word. Yeah. Tell your oh, friends, sure. tell all the mad men in your life. Hey. And uh, go on organdonor.gov and... Uh, get rid of your eyeballs. Yeah, get rid of all that. Somebody might need it. Yeah. I think if if, if gotten soon enough, they can take your fingernails. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, that's... I heard that uh, somewhere. I don't know if that's actually true. They'll grow back? We're no doctors. Even when you're dead? We're, no, they don't grow when you're dead. Your body just shrinks and it makes it look like they grow. <laughs> that's not true. That's exactly true. All right, vet out there. All right. Your next email Your hair to and us. your fingernails don't grow. Yeah. Your body shrinks right. and it makes it look like your hair grows and your t- nails grow. I mean, that just sounds ridiculous. Well, well we know that lady in Ecuador that, won't find out for a while. I'm so. not saying that doesn't make it true, but it sounds ridiculous. All right, well, me. next week we'll get back to you and I'll be right and Chris will be wrong. Uh, Thanks for checking us out. Another right. uh, inner name here and uh, we'll see you guys on right, the next guys. one.